Now, just <clears throat> excuse me. Just one week ago, on Sunday, Easter Sunday, we heard the devastating reports coming out of Sri Lanka, where on Easter Sunday morning, in the exact same way that we are gathered here right now, in the same way that we were gathered last Sunday to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, our fellow Christians attending worship services in churches in Sri Lanka, they gathered. But unlike our service, which ended with a hymn, theirs was horrifically cut short by the exploding bombs carried on the backs of Muslim suicide bombers. And well over 300 people were killed in these attacks. Many hundreds more than that were injured and maimed, and thousands upon thousands left grieving in the aftermath. And so, of course, things like this, horrific events like this, force the world to sit up and take notice, and it does for us as well. And it is what got me thinking about this sermon for this Sunday, is that we see around the world an ongoing persecution against Christians in many diverse places. And so it made me think about what is our place in all of this? How, how are we to respond to all of this? How are we to, in some way, support those who are suffering and being persecuted elsewhere? And also, how are we to handle the prospect of being potentially persecuted in some way ourselves? And so I want to present this uh, message this morning with this as a backdrop as it's very relevant to the times in which we are living. Would you bow with me as we prepare to hear from God's word? Heavenly Father, we are again mindful of the reality that there are many who are opposed to you, opposed to those who bear the name of Christ, and will not only oppose that in word, but also in action, and often through acts of violence. And Lord, we know that this is, not, this is not something new. This is not something that has just started or is, or is a new phenomenon. This has been happening from the very beginning. And we even saw how Peter had to deal with this as well. That the threat of, of persecution, whether politically or from others, is very real. And so, Father, we pray that as we consider this uh, this morning as we perhaps have our own troubled thoughts about it and what it may mean for us personally, I simply ask, Lord, that you would speak through your word, give us clarity, and give us encouragement, Lord, that though we have an enemy in this world, though we have trouble in this world, that when we look to you, we look to the one who overcomes the enemy and overcomes the world. Help us to see our place in that. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we consider the reality of persecution for followers of Christ, I want us to start by considering the three following questions and keep them in mind as we will go through the sermon this morning. Question number one, how are we to respond personally to persecution? Number two, what are we to gain from persecution? And number three, how can we support our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted elsewhere? Now, as I already said, persecution of followers of Christ is nothing new. In fact, over the past 2,000 years of world history, Christianity has been one of, if not the most feared, 
hated, and opposed belief around the world. So why is that? Well, consider that from the very beginning, Christianity's founder, Christ Jesus, whose name it bears, Christianity, followers of Christ, he himself was misunderstood, he was opposed, slandered, insulted, finally arrested, tortured, and executed, killed upon a cross. Why? Why was this done to him? Had he broken some law or done some terrible, unspeakable thing? No, he had not. What was the reason? Gospel of John in the opening tells us that reason. It was because the light of his life was so pure, so bright, that it exposed the darkness and the evil in the lives of those around him. And get this, they couldn't stand it. And so they killed him. Rather than be exposed by the light and turn to the light, they wanted to cover up their deeds of darkness by extinguishing the light. And so they killed Jesus. We see that pattern has been repeating itself ever since. We see in the book of Acts how Stephen's testimony for Jesus was so pure and so bold, so convicting, that as he was preaching and the Pharisees were there listening and the other religious leaders, they were so convicted by his words that they covered their ears to stop listening to him as they rushed to pick up stones and stone him to death. The first martyr of the church. Then of all of the apostles, the the twelve disciples plus the apostle Paul, twelve of the thirteen of them were put to death for declaring the gospel of Jesus. Some of them were crucified, others beheaded, run through by spears, hooks. Some were flogged to death and others were stoned. Even John, of the thirteen, he is the only apostle recorded who died of old age. But even he only was able to die of old age because God directly intervened to save his life. According to a contemporary historian of that day, Tertullian, he recorded that when the Roman emperor Domitian ordered that John be executed by plunging him into a vat of boiling oil in the Roman Colosseum, John miraculously emerged from the boiling oil unscathed, unburned in any way. And it is said that all in the audience of the Colosseum who were watching this were so in awe of this miracle that they were converted to Christianity that very day. And so in the aftermath of this, they exiled John to the Isle of Patmos, where, of course, we know he famously recorded his revelation, our last book of the Bible. Marching on through the ages, the Romans, for the first three centuries following Christ, attempted to eviscerate Christianity. Following them, countless kings and empires and dictators have outlawed it, jailed its followers, killed its preachers, burned its Bibles, and often right along with those Bibles, those who own them. And so this persecution has been going on since Christ and continued unabated into modern times. The findings of an extensive study on the subject was published in the 2002 book entitled The New Persecuted. And it states, in two millennia of Christian history, about 70 million faithful have given their lives for the faith. And of these 70 million, 45 million, fully 65% of them, 
we're in the 20th century. So think about that. In the last century alone, 65% of all murders took place in the last 100-year span of time. And so when we think about this and the scope of it and how long it's been going on for and how ruthless at times the persecution has been, it makes you wonder, how has Christianity survived all of this? How has it survived? How has it endured? Well, that's the miracle, isn't it? Isn't that the miracle? That in spite of all of this, not only has Christianity survived, it has flourished. It has grown exponentially to the point of where there are no accurate estimates of how many Christians are on planet Earth, but it's somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion people today bear the name of Christ. So how do we explain this? Well, I don't think any conventional logic can explain it. I I don't think you can make any human sense of it whatsoever. But history proves over and over again that the more Christians are persecuted, the more Christianity grows. Speaking to this strange phenomena, even back in the first century, the aforementioned Tertullian famously wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. A true story is told of a young man named Adam who lives in India. In his Hindu village, people were opposed to the gospel. But one day, Adam's own brother and his wife became the first Christian Christian believers in that village. Although Adam wasn't willing to follow, he observed their lives very closely. And he noticed the changes that began taking place. They began to share the gospel with other villagers. But at first, no one would listen. Then they began to oppose his brother and his sister-in-law. They began beating him when he wouldn't be silent. Finally, it got so bad that every single time they saw him in public, the Hindus would beat Adam's brother. But then something strange began to happen. When they beat him, someone else would say, I am a Christian too. Finally, this continued to the point of where there was dozens of followers of Christ identifying with Christ in the village, even as the beatings were increasing. And finally, Adam himself realized that what his brother had was something he did not have. And he became a follower of Christ as well. He too joined right in with his brother, receiving those beatings. He knew what he was signing up for from the get-go. But in that, he suddenly realized the sweetness of intimacy with Christ that his brother had that he had been missing. And now it was his as well. Finally, one day, the villagers surrounded Adam, his brother, and the small church of new believers. What are we going to do with them? We can't stand them, they said. Finally, in a rage, they had prepared a huge pot of boiling water. And they were prepared to cook the Christians alive. Then one of the Hindus calmed the mob and said, If we do this, even more will become Christians. And so they agreed, No, we won't do this. We'll just beat them again. But after the beating, more joined. And more came to bear the name of Christ. The church has since grown in that village to more than 35 families. And in fact, almost the entire village has since become followers of Christ. And thankfully, the beatings have stopped. But it's interesting, when we hear a story like that, we realize that something powerful is at work 
that when people see persecution and opposition to those who are bearing the name of Christ, but then saying, I'm going to join that, something deeper than mere human logic is happening here. And so to us, when I share a story like that, it doesn't sound like the greatest sales pitch for Christianity, right? I mean, like, who leads with this? I mean, why would Adam become a Christian after watching his brother getting beat repeatedly? Shouldn't that be a deterrent? That's what it was intended as. Look, if you become a Christian, this is what happens to you. Don't do it. Human logic would say, I don't want to be beat. I'm not going to become a Christian. Think about this. If someone were to come up to you later today, and they were to ask you this question, why should I become a Christian? Why? Are you going to lead with, so you can get persecuted? Anyone? Is that what you're going to lead with? Yeah, I think you should become a follower of Christ so that you could get persecuted and potentially martyred. No, you're not going to lead with that, right? Why? Because we humans, we naturally fear persecution. We fear pain. And it's in our natures that if we can avoid it, we will. Well, most of us anyways. (laughs) There's a few that we call suckers for punishment, right? We're all that from time to time. But for the most part, if we, can, if we can avoid pain, we will. That is, unless, unless we have a greater conviction, a greater motivation, a greater power to face persecution and endure. Now I want you to turn with me to our scripture passage from this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 to 12. Now, I said about how if someone were to ask you why they should become a Christian, you wouldn't lead with persecution. But here we find something very interesting in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 to 12. Now, of course, this is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. Uh, He's preaching it to crowds of people who are flocking to him from all over. Uh, Estimates are that there were over 5,000 Possibly, when you include women and children, upwards of 10,000 people gathered on this hillside on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. I've been in the location where, where this sermon took place. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a natural amphitheater, and so his voice would have projected on the hillside so thousands of people could have heard him preaching. And it's, it's truly a spectacular place for a spectacular sermon. And he begins it beautifully with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And on it goes with blessed, blessed, blessed. I've had many people tell me that this is one of their favorite passages of Scripture. And I agree, it is one of my favorite, personal favorite passages in Scripture. But when people tell me that, I often wonder, when they say this is their favorite passage in Scripture, does that include verses 10 to 12? Right? Does that include this? Listen to the words of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So now question one, how are we to respond to persecution? Well, according to Jesus, we are to respond to persecution with rejoicing 
and gladness. Anyone give me an amen on that? No, there wasn't. What's wrong? Come on. Rejoicing and gladness. Amen. Right? This is supposed to pump us up. Jesus is saying, hey, this is, a, uh, this, is, this is something to get excited about here. Of course, we're struggling with this. It seems counterintuitive. It seems backwards to our human way of thinking. You know, I can just imagine good old Simon Peter hearing this on the, on the mountainside that day. And, and after it's all said and done, I can just picture him with a puzzled look on his face, tapping Jesus on the shoulder and, did I hear you right? Yeah, Peter, you heard me. Rejoice and be glad. And Peter going, okay, and not wanting to look any more foolish, just kind of stewing on it and walking away, confused and wondering, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because of the next question. Question two, what are we to gain from persecution? In other words, what motivates us to view our sufferings for Christ Not with fear and apprehension, not as something that I want to avoid at all costs, but rather to view it as something that I'm going to rejoice and be glad over. And Jesus tells us that if you desire to gain God's blessing, to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to receive a great eternal reward there, then, whenever you are persecuted, insulted, and slandered, Rejoice and be glad, for God will reward you in far greater measure than your suffering. Your suffering will be temporary, but your reward will be eternal. And so Jesus is saying, when you look at the temporary nature of your persecutions, being insulted, slandered, whatever else you've got to face, it's going to be temporary, but your rewards are going to be out of this world and eternal. And so he's saying this should motivate us to view our persecutions because they are temporary with rejoicing and with gladness. Now, does that mean that the persecutions themselves are what God is rewarding us for? Does that mean that like, it, it's actually the persecution that, that God likes? That like, whatever the persecution is, no matter the reason, we're going to get a reward for it? So let me give you some examples. Does that mean that if someone insults you because they don't like your hair... Does that mean you get an, an eternal benefit for it? Like someone comes up like, man, your hair looks terrible. You're like, yes, eternal reward. Is that what it means? Or, or say you're, you're driving in Winnipeg. I've had, I'll, so I won't, this isn't a confession. And, and you accidentally cut someone off in traffic and they flip you the bird, you know, the old one finger salute. And I can go, yes, eternal reward. That, that's going upstairs. Can I say that? Or how about, how about, I'm going to give you a really extreme scenario. If someone slandered my good name by saying, you know what, Danny's actually a secret Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan. <laughs> like, that, that cuts deep, right? So I can just say eternal blessing for sure when that happens. As much as this pains me to say no, no, and no, that's not how this works. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not persecution, any old persecution for any old reason that's going to be rewarded. Don't miss this. It's what we are being persecuted for that matters to God. Look again at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. Righteousness. So what does that mean? Righteousness essentially means being right with God and living right according to God. So being right with God and living right according to God. 
So, of course, our righteousness comes not from within ourselves, but from Christ alone. So when we put faith in Christ, he imputes his righteousness upon us. Now, that's the fancy theological term. He imputes his righteousness upon us. Uh, A summary for that theological statement of having his righteousness imputed upon us comes from a line in the song, The Solid Rock. It's a profound line. It goes like this. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Dressed in his righteousness alone, not my own, faultless to stand before the throne. So picture that when the the scriptures call even our acts, our human acts of righteousness, in God's eyes are like filthy rags. So even if we try to dress ourselves up righteously, God says, no, you're filthy. The stain of sin is all over you. You just can't measure up. So we're dressed in filthy rags. So picture us in our filthy rags of sin. Jesus comes and freely dresses us with the clean clothing of perfection. His perfection. Enabling us to come faultless before the throne of God. And so that's what he means by the works of righteousness. Living righteously. Right with God through Christ. Living right according to to God by the power of Christ. And so now when living by Christ's righteousness in an unrighteous world, in a world that is being wrong with God and living opposed to God, so the exact opposite of living right with God and right according to God, we're living in a world that is wrong with God and living contrary to God. And so when you live righteously in an unrighteous world, the fact is you will stand out Jesus says in the later verses, like a candle burning on its stand, like a city on top of a hill, righteousness stands out. You just can't hide it away. You can't miss it. And now the righteous person, however, may not think that they're really doing anything all that special. But trust me, people will notice. For the simple reason that righteousness stands in stark contrast to the darkness of the world. Small example of that. It was a number of years ago when a local community group was doing a fundraiser event for our local splash park. And very thankful for that splash park. We've enjoyed it many times. Who here has stood under the bucket? Anyone? Uh, A few of you. Okay, good. So very thankful for it. One of the fundraiser events that they did for it, they brought in some comedians. And in the organizer's defense, they didn't know what the comedians act all entailed. So suffice to say, and all I will say, is that the comedians were vulgar. And that's putting it about as mildly as I can put it. Now, Leanne was working at the school division office at the time, and so the entire office went together to this event for their Christmas party. And so we were all there, the the spouses were invited, and so not wishing to be rude... We listened and we endured about as much of this so-called comedy as we could. We never said anything. And somewhere in the course of the evening, we politely bowed out. The next day at the office, even Leanne's non-church attending co-workers were apologizing to her for the event. They didn't have anything to do with it. And even they were convicted that, like, ew, that was kind of gross. And we're sorry you had to hear all of that. I later had two of the event organizers seek me out to personally apologize for how crude the comedians had been, saying, we weren't quite expecting that. And they personally apologized to me. And it just got me thinking. 
I hadn't said or done anything. Neither had Leanne. So why were they apologizing to us? Well, it just got me thinking. On the most basic level, they knew we were Christians. And so simply knowing in general what Christians stand for, and on top of that, of course, they know we're a pastor couple, our simple presence convicted them enough to feel the need to apologize. So here we see that even without me saying a word, it stood out in contrast to what was being presented from the stage. Now on to the second reason for blessings from persecution. Verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. So the first reason is because of righteousness. The second reason is because of me. So let me ask you, have you ever been insulted, not for your choice of a sports team, not for your choice in fashion or, or what you drive or what you run on the field. We've all had the case John Deere, the Ford Chevy insults back and forth, right? But we're, we're talking next level. Not about things like that. Have you ever been insulted for being a Christian? Have you ever been made fun of or maybe left out or ostracized in some way because you voiced something about your faith in Christ? Have you ever lost a friend because of it? Have you ever had a family member give you a hard time because you became a Christian and started going to church or going to youth group? Now, I realize that in comparison to the violent types of persecution we read about in the Bible and we hear about elsewhere in the world today, these sorts of things seem small. But even so... Any persecution, any persecution that comes our way as a result of living righteously and for proudly bearing the name of Christ, this is the type of persecution that God will eternally bless and reward us for enduring. It's not about how big it is on the scale. It's about the reason behind it. If it's because of righteousness, it's, if it's because you simply bear the name of Christ it will be rewarded, according to Jesus, for eternity. This is what God delights in blessing. Now, I'll be honest. So far in my life, I've experienced very little in the way of direct, active persecution for my faith. Much of that is due to the fact that we are blessed to live in a country where we have freedom of religion. But more than that, we have a legacy of Christian faith in our land that we still enjoy, whether people want to admit that or not. As a pastor, my sermons are often aired on public radio. They can also be accessed on the internet through our church website. There's a podcast. So whoever wants to listen to my sermons can find them anywhere in the world through the internet. And so that means that if anyone wants to dredge up my sermons to find things that they want to uh, attack me for, oppose me over, things that I have stated, it's all there. And to date, I haven't had that happen. I haven't had the police come knock on my door. I haven't been pressured by the authorities to censor my message. However, we see this exact thing happening in many places and even in the American and Canadian cultures. We've seen how recently it's shifting in this direction where now politicians in Canada are being labeled extremists and even forced to apologize simply for having voiced biblical truths that go contrary to our new morality. 
This is happening right here in Canada. I could give you numerous examples. Uh, we could spend the next half an hour doing that. I won't. I think you can think of some on your own. Undeniably, the prevailing attitudes towards Christianity is becoming more hostile in Canada. So in response to that, what should we do? How should we respond? Tremble and be afraid? Should we hunker down and keep our heads down and our mouths closed? No. No. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. But now I'm going to give you just, I'm going to give this as a freebie this morning. Do you want to avoid any chance of persecution? Do you want to make sure that your life is just, is just smooth sailing and no one will ever oppose you or, or insult you, at least not for, for the reasons we've been talking about this morning? Well, let me just give you this as a, as a free item because it's incredibly easy. Just live unrighteously. That's it. Live like the rest of the world and blend in. So when confronted with actions and behaviors that go against God's word, biblical truth, just compromise. Give in. Don't rock the boat. Keep your head down. Never mention the name of Jesus or admit that you're a Christian to anyone, let alone that you go to church. Not only will this keep you out of everyone else's crosshairs, the devil will leave you alone too. Why? Because you're no threat to him. If you don't bear the name of Christ, you're no threat to him. But of course, there's just one small problem with this approach. Jesus condemns it. Mark 8.38, Jesus declared, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Make no mistake, to live that way is to live in the opposite direction of receiving eternal blessing and reward. Instead, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be ashamed of that person who lives that way. I will be ashamed of them before my Father. So to confess Christ, but then keep on living like the world, keep on blending in with the world to avoid any opposition or persecution, is to make Jesus ashamed of us. It's a sobering thought. And it brings to mind that picture of Simon Peter. There he was the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, denying that he even knew Jesus to a servant girl. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid of persecution. And now perhaps you realize that in some way, you've been doing the same thing. You've just been trying to blend in with the world and in effect denying any association with Christ for fear of opposition. Is there any way back from that? Was there any way back for Peter? Well, we know that there was. Jesus graciously gave Peter Another opportunity to three times affirm his love and return to Christ's service, no matter the cost. And it was not without effect. We move ahead to 1 Peter chapter 4. And verses 12 to 14 are called to worship from this morning. And as we read this passage, remember, Peter is the author. Listen to the radical change that has happened in his life as he writes these words to a heavily persecuted group of Christians. Peter writes, Dear friends, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, 
so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. Peter finally gets it. He gets it. Maybe when he first heard that Sermon on the Mount, he left that day confused. He didn't get it. But here we see Peter gets it. Notice he is virtually paraphrasing Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says. Fiery trials in the face of them. Be very glad. Have wonderful joy and you will be blessed. Why? Here's the bottom line. These trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Partners with Christ in his suffering. Now consider that on the cross, Christ suffered in our place. That's why he was there. He wasn't there for anyone else. He was there for Danny Greening, and he was there for you. He suffered in our place. He suffered to take the judgment of our sin on himself. He took the death that we deserve to die. All so that we could be forgiven, restored to God, and righteous before him. Nothing needs to be added to God's salvation. It is truly finished. We don't need to do anything to earn it. We don't need to suffer in order to receive it. It's a free gift. But out of a grateful and transformed heart, Peter considered trials in Christ a something that he considered a privilege. Not because the the trials themselves or the suffering earned him salvation, but because it made him a partner with Christ in his suffering. For Peter, not a dreadful duty, but a privilege to willingly suffer for the one who so willingly suffered for him, to save him and set him free. Not as a duty, not as a chore, Not as something that I sigh and I guess I got to do it, Lord. I'll endure this. Peter says, no, consider it a privilege to be worthy to be called a partner with Christ. And right now around our world in communist nations, Muslim-majority nations, and many African nations, Christians today are truly partners with Christ in his suffering. So though we are not currently suffering in exactly the same way, How can we partner with fellow believers who are suffering persecution? Three ways. First, through solidarity with them. 1 Corinthians 12.26, speaking of the church's body, says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So may we grieve along with those in Sri Lanka who are suffering today. Second way is through prayer. This seems obvious, but it's so easily overlooked and forgotten. So, like those believers who were praying for Peter when he was imprisoned, may we pray for strength and courage and comfort for those who are living in nations where Christians right now are imprisoned. Where right now those who identify with Christ are are threatened with not only their livelihoods, but their very lives being endangered. May we pray for them. And the third way is through awareness. It's much easier to look away from persecution and suffering because it makes us uncomfortable. We hate to look in the face of suffering. And yet, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Colossian believers from prison while he was in chains, said to them in his parting remarks, Remember my chains. He didn't want it for pity's sake. He said, Remember my chains so that you remember me in prayer. Remember my chains. 
And so we need to remember the persecution of fellow believers. And this requires our deliberate awareness of their situations. We can't remember what we don't know. In this regard, one of the most unreported places of Christian persecution today is in Sudan and Nigeria. There, Boko Haram and other radical Muslim forces, most notably Fulani herdsmen, are regularly attacking Christian villages and slaughtering hundreds of people at a time. So far, tens of thousands have been killed and millions of refugees created in the violence. One of the many stories that did make news headlines here involves a 15-year-old schoolgirl named Leah Sherabu. Leah was kidnapped on February 19, 2018 by Boko Haram, along with 104 of her classmates. Eventually, all of the girls in captivity were released through back-channel efforts, all except for Leah Sherabu. Why? Why were 103 released, but not the 104th? The reason is this. She refused to deny Christ and convert to Islam. Leah's mother, Rebecca Sherabu, shared with an Open Doors team member what one of the released girls had told her. Leah was told to say some Islamic incantations before she would be allowed onto the truck, but she refused. She said, I will never say it because I am not a Muslim. They became angry and told her if she wouldn't denounce Christ, she would remain with them a slave. Still, Leah refused. And we watched Leah being left alone with the other members. We kept crying and waving at her till the truck vanished. Then when Leah realized she would not be freed along with the others, she had quickly scribbled a message to her mother and slipped it to one of her classmates. And the last words that her mother received from her daughter was this, My mother, you should not be disturbed. I know it is not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I am fine where I am, for I am confident that one day I shall see your face again, if not here, than at the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. A 15-year-old girl. At last reports, now 16-year-old Leah Sherabu is still in captivity of Boko Haram. So may we be inspired by her faith and her courage. May we remember her. May we no longer fear opposition. May we instead recognize the tremendous gain that the Lord promises us. And may we be ready and willing to partner with Christ in his sufferings for the glorious spirit of God rests upon us. Amen. Heavenly Father, today we intercede for Leah and all those like her, Lord, in Africa right now who are suffering terribly for the sake of bearing your name. And Lord, as we intercede, as we grieve and suffer with her mother who has been separated from her daughter, Father, even so we are inspired. May we have that sort of courage to live where we are today. Not ashamed, but proud to bear the name of Christ. Willing to suffer for you, the one who so willingly suffered for us, to purchase our redemption, our freedom, and our right standing with God. And so, Lord, in this day in which we live where we feel 
ever more the increasing pressure to just be silent about your faith. Don't talk about it, especially not in the public arena. Oh Lord, give us courage. Give us boldness. That in season, in the right time and place, we would continue to speak your word, to live the faith, to live righteously in this unrighteous world so that others can see the glory and the beauty of Christ in us and be drawn to you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.